Section two of the Curtison Unmasked. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Curtison Unmasked, or The Whoredoms of Jezebel Painted to the Life, by an anonymous author. Section two. It remains now that I should prescribe you some few recipes and antidotes, which, if you'll make use of, I'll warrant to cure you of the fever of lust into which the strange woman will endeavour to cast you. And my first is this. First, then, let every one make a covenant with his eyes never to look upon any object with a lustful and impure inclination. Job 31, 1. I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I look upon a maid? Shut your eyes, those windows of your soul, through which you receive the species from all sinful objects. For through those windows a little sin, like a little boy, may creep in, and open the door of your heart to the rest of us. An eminent historian of our own nation tells us that whilst the Earl of Salisbury was at the Battle of Orleans, opening a little window of the castle where he was to view the enemy, a little lad killed him with a cannon planted and discharged against the windows. So it may be, whilst thou openst thy soul's windows, thy eyes, to look upon a beautiful object, a small lust may chance to shoot thee with a temptation, and leave thee dead in sin for ever. Scipio and Alexander, both of them, are reported to have taken fair captives. Scipio would not suffer his to come into his sight, lest he himself might be captivated by their beauty. But Alexander gave his captives admittance into his presence, and though Alexander's was the greater contency, yet Scipio took the wisest course, for tis dangerous to look upon that by which we may at length be ensnared, the exposing of beauty to be seen, and the loss of modesty and chastity follow one another. Let us therefore attend to our blessed Saviour's words, who tells us that whosoever looks upon a woman with an intention to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. When we come into the presence of moving beauties, we must do as men usually do when the summer sun grows potent and vehement. Though we admire their beauty's greatness, yet we must shun its heat. Each place can afford us a shadow to hide us from it. The poets tell us that when some young men had beheld the three equal beautied gorgons, they were thereby deprived and divested of their human shape, and metamorphosed into stones. So if we be not cautious how we too lasciviously gaze upon powerful beauties, who knows how soon we may be so callous and obdurate, and our hearts be rendered so stony 
that without the least regret or remorse we may first fall into the profound abyss of adultery, and thence to that bottomless one of hell. We must not do by a beautiful object as by the crocodile, but quite contrary, for we must be sure not to look first upon it, and then we shall remain secure from its killing glances. For he who is still looking, and always gazing, acts like him who drinks wine in the very height of a fever. But if still men will look upon fair objects, let the same use be made of them which the wiser sort of Catholics do of pictures. Let their beautiful features serve to raise our devotion to God, and make us admire his curious workmanship. And since women are of late so proud and licentious as to expose and prostitute themselves to the eyes of men in unseemly and immodest gestures, and they only show themselves true Britons in this, that, like the ancient Britons, they delight to paint their bodies, and, like the rainbow, display their transient and fading colours. Let us, when we see such as these, call to mind these considerations, to allay those inordinacies which may otherwise arise in our thoughts upon the contemplation of so vicious objects. Let us consider that they are but vain dames to bestow such curious cost on so woeful and sordid a piece of dirt, which, it may be, would otherwise resemble the clay Prometheus used before it was informed and animated, that tis their folly to gild a clay wall, and enamel a bubble, when they can give no other than a woman's reason for it. Let us consider that women have no beauty but what we are pleased to give them, and that if we call them fair, tis but in the way of poetry or compliment, and that these dim Cynthias would be very obscure if they borrowed not that light they have from the sun of men's favour. Or suppose we are so candid and ingenuous as to grant them beautiful, yet we may see by experience that their beauty is like a sweet and much-coveted banquet, which is no sooner tasted but its delicious luxury is swallowed up by oblivion. Let us think with ourselves that there's no conformation of lineaments, no composition of features, no symmetry of parts, so exactly combined and compacted in one person, but a critical eye may discover some imperfection. Fairest Cynthia is not without her spots, nor beautiful Venus without her moles. 2. If you would be cured of the fever of lust, into which the strange woman will endeavour to cast you, use a moderate, slender, and ascetic diet. 
be content with that with which nature herself will be contented, and then a little will suffice you. And if you do this, you will act according to the rules of discretion and prudence. Use fasting and severe abstinence, which are the proper abscissions of the instruments and temptations of lust. And to this is reducible a restraint from all morose delectation and looser banqueting you must not desire to be fed at vitellius his board you must not desire nero's effeminate baths nor tiberius his naked pictures to incite your lust you must not hunt all grounds draw all seas search every brook and bush or dispeople the four elements to please your wanton lusts and try experiments upon your judicious palates but as you must abstain from things unlawful so also from lawful too you must not only take care you transcend not the bounds of temperance and moderation but you must sometimes abridge yourselves of the necessary repast assuring yourselves that the more you deny yourselves the more you shall receive from god tis storied of richard neville earl of warwick styled also make king that in the great battle at ferrybridge between henry the sixth and edward the fourth when he perceived his side almost worsted by henry the sixth he slew his horse with his own sword and then uttered these heroic expressions let all that will fight stay with me and then according to the ceremony of those times kissing the cross upon his sword he fought with singular courage and prowess so in the conflict between our lusts and us let us kill and mortify our bodies which in the language of socrates are our souls horses and then excite every faculty of our souls with these words let all that will fight stay with me and when we have done thus let us kiss and take up our cross and fight stoutly under christ the captain of our salvation against our lusts it being impossible to keep the spirit pure whilst tis overburdened with too much flesh and exposed to all entertainments of enemies by fomentations and pamperings remembering the counsel of the philosopher that we must not take care for the body simply as the body but as subservient to the soul and that you may be the better induced to do this remember as the forementioned author has well said that the soul is yourself but your body yours for tis the soul which uses but that which is used by it is the body and by this separation of the body from the soul you will preserve your nature from confusion
nor think that things, ta entos, which are without, concern you, nor contend for those as for yourself, and so, consequently, avoid too much care of your body, not resembling those that, so that sumpter horse the body be hung with gaudy trappings and pampered, care not with what rags they clothe the soul. We may also consider that these high pamperings and feasting ourselves have no real pleasure in them, and this I am sure was the orator's judgment, when he said, I would not fancy or imagine with myself as if luxurious gluttons lived pleasantly, and such who vomit upon the table again, but what now they took off, and with their crude stomachs carried from feasts the next day ingurgitate themselves into them again, who, by reason of their laziness and surfeiting, see the sun neither rise nor set, and are in indigency of those estates which they have profusely expended. None of us, said he, ever thought such gluttons as these live a pleasant life. And the same author tells us that there is no less pleasure to be taken in a slender and spare diet than in the most exquisite dainties, there be no less delight in the Persian nasturtium than in the richly furnished Syracusan tables, so much cried down and discommended by Plato. But this shall suffice for the second recipe. And my third is this. Three. Secure your heart so well that no ill-thought creeps into it, and proves an incentive to lust. Let not the smallest ventricle of your heart conceive an evil thought, lest at last it bring forth sin. One little fly will taint and corrupt a great quantity of flesh, and so one little thought hovering about thy heart like a little fly will quickly taint it. Be sure, therefore, like the Emperor Domitian, always to be catching and killing these flies. Consider that if you indulge yourselves in wicked thoughts and lustings, there wants nothing to the consummation of the act, but some convenient circumstances, which, because they are not then attainable, the act is for a time impeded, but the malice nothing abated. For the law of not coveting no less forbids sinful desires and concupiscences than sinful actions. For no man desires or lusts after anything but what pleases him. But every complacency or delight in an unlawful matter, although short and transient, nay, although at last repulsed and prohibited from breaking out into an external act, hath contracted by that very motion the blemish and spot of an internal sin. 
and hence St. Augustine, following the doctrine of St. Paul, affirms that the concupiscence of the flesh is sin in a good man, because he has in him a disobedience and reluctancy against the government of the rational faculty. Again, he sins that inwardly lusteth or desires, although he follow not those desires by a consequent act, because such motions are not pure passions, but involve negations of due acts, which ought to have been in lieu thereof. A man may be incestuous that never bodily commits the act, and from these impure fires, which men kindle and cherish within them, they are usually in love with their deformed lusts, as Alcaeus was with the warts in his boy's face, though they are deformed marks. When Brutus and Cassius assaulted Caesar with a design and resolution to murder him, we read that as soon as he saw Brutus, he cried out, Kai su technon, and art thou here, my son, my darling, and open his breast to him. So when any lust comes to assault us with a design to make us dead in sin, we court and caress it in Caesar's words, Art thou here, my darling, and open our hearts and breasts unto it, whereas we should always be prepared with preservatories against it. 4. Let your discourse be always chaste and pure. Decline with great care all indecent obscenity in your language, chastening and confining your tongue, and restraining it with grace. For as St. James tells us, James 3, verse 2, If any man offend not in word, tongue, the saying is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Either be silent, or speak those things which are better than silence, is a good rule here. Every bad tree is known by its bad fruit, and an unclean man may be traced by his unclean discourse, it being a shrewd symptom the will is depraved, when our discourse is unchaste and obscene. And in this Hierocles concurs with me. The will of man, saith he, adhering long neither to virtue nor vice, utters forth expressions inclining to both, as resembling the contrary affections in it. This advice, therefore, of Tyrius Maximus is very sovereign. I require such a pleasure in words, which virtue may not disdain to make her waiting woman, and attend upon her. St. James calls the tongue a fire, James 3, verse 6, and the schoolmen call the lusts of the flesh, fomes, tender. Let us, therefore, be careful that the fire of our tongue light not upon this tender, and kindle it. Modesty and a becoming blush is the fence of all virtue, 
and when this is broken down by obscene talk, the banks will overflow with impure streams. A rose, which when it hath lost its blush, and begins to look pale, by those symptoms you may conclude that tis a dying. It hath ever been accounted a true rule, qualis vir, talis oratio. We know the bird by the tune, the beagle by his mouth, and a man by his words. We cannot expect that he that hath lost his voice and his chastity should sing praises to God so melodiously as another that is chaste, virtuous, and continent. A stinking breath is not a more sure symptom of putrid lungs than an obscene tongue of an unclean heart. Twere better that this clapper stood still, except it could give a purer sound. It were better this clock never struck, except it were for other ends than to waken our lusts and put them in motion. And I look upon obscene discourse but as an impure breath coming out of the mouth, which is fit for nothing but to make an exhalation or ignis fatuus, which, if we follow it, will lead us into bogs and precipices of uncleanness. But if we fall down and prostrate ourselves before God in prayer, it will quickly be dissolved. Wherefore, five, let us use frequent and earnest prayers to God, to give us the assistance of his Holy Spirit, for this devil of lust sometimes cannot be cast out but by prayer. When the Romans were in great distress and surprised with a sudden assault of their enemies, they ran to the temple to get arms, which were laid there against an extraordinary occasion. So, if we shall be at any time assaulted by our lusts, let us have recourse to the temple of God, and take up the arms of the church, which are prayers and tears. We must not, as Nero did at the burning of Rome, sing peons and rejoice, when our bodies, those temples of the Holy Ghost, are burning with the flames of lust. Numa Pompilius, when news was brought him, that his enemies were ready to surprise him, put off the messenger with this ready memorable speech. Ego de Thuo, I am offering a sacrifice to God. So when we have any news of being surprised by our lusts, we may return the same answer. Tis enough if we are at our prayers, which will secure and guard us from them. Plutarch reports of a boy, who, though he was burnt with a coal that fell from the altar, yet continued his oblation of sacrifice without intermission. So let us, though we are sometimes burned with the fire of lust, be so fervent in our prayers to God, that the fervency of them may exceed and draw away the heat of our lusts, as a great fire does the heat which was caused by a less. 6. 
avoid idleness, and be sure always to be well employed. I may give an idle man that character one gives of Themistocles, when out of employment, that he will be luxurious, dissolute, lustful, and intemperate. Man's heart is a mill ever grinding some grist or other, and I may add, if there be no grain for it to work upon, it sets itself on fire with lust. Let us consider that whilst we are idle and not employed, we can expect no assistance from God, and if we should be assaulted by lust, according to that of the historian, when we once give ourselves over to idleness, we shall in vain implore the aid and assistance of God, for then he is angry and offended at us. No, no, let us rather be in continual action and employment, and be diligently conversant in our several lawful vocations, for, as the same author tells us, we cannot, by a few prayers only, and faint supplications, obtain aid and assistance from God, but by watching, and being in continual action and consultation. All things will succeed prosperously unto us. It was a saying of Apius Clodius, that it were better for the Romans to be busied and employed, then remiss and idle, because great empires by agitation and motion are excited to virtue. And it was another's complaint that idleness, that great enemy to discipline, corrupted and spoiled the Roman soldiers. And so we may complain that idleness hinders us in our spiritual warfare against our lusts, Whilst Atalanta was employed in hunting with Diana, she kept her virtue pure and immaculate, but when she fell into idleness, she indulged herself in the gratification of her insatiable lusts. So, whilst our souls are employed in hunting after knowledge, and other things which are commendable and praiseworthy, they may preserve themselves from lust, and uncleanness. It was a saying of a Latin poet, Take away idleness, and you break Cupid's bow. And I may say, with more than poetical authority, Take away idleness, and you break the devil's bow. For idleness is the bow out of which the devil shoots the fiery darts of his temptations at us. And if, after all these means used, you cannot contain yourselves within the bounds of chastity, then, seven, enter the sacred bonds of matrimony. Tis far better thou shouldst marry than burn. Take St. Paul's counsel, who, to avoid fornication, bids every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband. And though I cannot but esteem a single life and holy celibate, which was consecrated by the holy Jesus in his proper person, to be an excellent virtue, 
yet since every one hath not that gift of continence which our saviour had and god hath instituted matrimony as an ordinance and the holy jesus hallowed it and made it honourable with the expense of the first miracle we read he ever performed on earth and made it more sublimate by making it a representation of the union between him and his spouse the church it is a thing highly commendable in itself and be made use of as a great preservative against inordinacies in our affections and unruly passions and a learned author puts it in the catalogue of such arts without which a man cannot live well and happily and says quote, that although to live a single life is not totally repugnant to human nature yet it is repugnant to the nature of most men because a single life and celibate are only fitted for the most excellent minds and such as are refined from the dross of impure concupiscence close quote. and another author brings in romulus speaking to his neighboring nations that they would not grudge to mix themselves together in a joint alliance and consanguinity and though the roman state seemed to countenance a single life because they afforded dignities to certain vestal virgins yet the number of those vestals was but small and then the dignities and privileges which they had were no other but that they were made equal in state to married wives they were preferred before all that lived unmarried but not before married persons but whilst i am speaking of this order of vestal nuns i cannot but endeavour to excite in you an abhorrency of those destructive nunneries into which the papists cast their virgins in their infancy and before they come to maturity of years or are which they can never be able to judge of the strength of their own continency into what stews have these nunneries been frequently converted by reason of restraining those from the sacred ligament of marriage who have not so absolute a command over themselves as to abstain from unlawful carnality how is that sacred fire which among the romans of old was preserved by their vestal virgins by these changed into flames of lust which all their holy water will never allay or extinguish oh that these sottish abusers of the holy ordinance of god called marriage would but call to mind how the blessed and immaculate virgin our saviour's mother was betrothed to joseph lest honourable marriage might be disreputed and seem inglorious by a positive rejection from any participation of that transcendent honour i could heartily wish that these our romanists would but imitate the brave example of the old romans 
who thought none eligible to be Jupiter's priests, but such as were married, and as Tacitus and Suetonius tell us, set a fine upon their heads who refused to be united in the holy bonds of matrimony. It was out of respect of this that the Emperor Augustus sent for Germanicus, his children, and hugging and caressing them in his royal breast, signified by his countenance and other signs of his hand, that others ought to imitate Germanicus in marrying with joy and alacrity. And thus, you see, I have asserted and maintained the laudable privilege and ordination of marriage, and now cannot but be convinced that you think, in this my last recipe of marriage, I have prescribed you pleasanter physic than in any of the former. If, therefore, you cannot obtain a cure from them, you may, from this, joined to them. Seotonius tells us that Galba selected a jewel to beautify and adorn the goddess Fortune, which, on the sudden, as if it deserved a more sacred deity, he dedicated to Venus. But I hope that we, after we have selected those pearls of price, our souls, for God's service, shall not dedicate them to Venus and our sensual appetites for we are most certainly informed by the text that the end thereof is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword finis end of section two and end of the courtesan unmasked or the whoredoms of Jezebel painted to the life, with antidotes against them, or heavenly juleps to cool men in the fever of lust.